Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. Can you edit? The- oh, okay. Can you never mind? Oh, never mind. It, that's okay. That's okay. I can uh, I can save things for later, Anne. I have an abundance of ability to do that. I well, I was wondering if you have the ability to edit. I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I've got the golden scissors. All right. Very good. Yes, divine like power. <laughs> At least where the computer is concerned, not with anything else. <laughs> with, right. all of, with all of that said, we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers, and our special interview guest today is the Reverend Ann Kemper, who uh, was briefly my ordination mentor and who is active with both the District Committee on Ordained Ministry and the Board of Ordained Ministry. So that means she spent a lot of time uh, supervising me and Jess while we were going through the ordination process at the same time. And she's also the pastor at Covenant United Methodist Church in Rochester. So welcome to Anne. Thank you. This is an honor. I've, I've seen your guest list. I feel very um, blessed. Mm-hmm. And we've had, I mean, we haven't had a bad interview yet. We, it's, it's just all. doing this. Oh, yeah, no, it's just... Yeah, it's just been a blast. And, you know, we've we've talked to some wonderful people, you know, as Absolutely. you've seen. Yeah. It's and you get to be one of them impressive. here. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, I'll do my best. I'll try to live up to my previous interviewees. Oh, you will do fine. You It'll will do fine. fine. You, 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 all you have to do is just be your marvelous, fabulous self. All right, I'll give it a shot. And you are already her. So the place that we always like to start these interviews, Anne, is for you to share as much as you'd like to with us about your spiritual journey. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate kind of getting a heads up about that question because uh, it goes back, uh, my answer goes back a long, long way. I've, I've never not known the church. I may have avoided it for a few years in my life, but I've never not known it. And I've never um, not loved the church. And it's, it's been that way as long as I can remember. There were times in my life when I stepped aside, but I was concentrating on other things. And um, there were some issues about the church I didn't really care about. And so I stepped back. And then when I had children, a child, um, I, it was just very obvious to me that I wanted him to have that experience that I had, you know, make whatever decision that he would as an adult, but I knew I couldn't raise this child alone. And my husband was not involved in the church at all. So, um, so I got back into it and, um, I did a lot of, um, Sunday school teaching. I was on a lot of committees. I eventually 
got a job in administration and education at a big suburban church and um and as that evolved i realized more and more i remembered back when i was i don't know 12 years old maybe and i wanted to work in a church but that was the 1960s nebraska uh, and I'm not sure there were any women clergy, certainly no role models that I knew of. And so I thought, well, I either have to be a Sunday school teacher or um, marry a pastor or be a nun. <laughs> I knew that that wasn't possible. So uh, I just I just kind of pushed that back. Um, and then my children grew up and I there was just a, a time in my life where I just knew the obvious answer was seminary. And one of the things that brought that about was that I had uh, coordinated in the church a study of the Bishop's Initiative on Children and Poverty. And that just opened my eyes uh, in an incredible way, all of a sudden, Everything that I knew about God, about Jesus, um, all made sense to me when I looked at it through the lens of poverty. And it was awakening, and I had tons of questions. So I started seminary very um, cautiously with just one course and um, wanted to keep going and realized that I can't. I can't, I'm not eligible for any assistance or scholarships unless I'm full-time, but I also can't afford to give up my job. I had, at this point, I was a single mom. So I worked full-time and I went to seminary full-time and it wasn't easy, but I wanted it so bad and it was so fulfilling to me uh, that I just kept going. And then one day I, somebody said to me, well, why aren't you pastoring a church? And I said, well, I just never really thought about it. I went into that in an urban setting, which I grew up in a rural setting in the church. I worked um, on staff at a suburban church and I knew my calling was in the urban center. And that's where I've been for the last almost 20 years. And it's been amazing. Um, I cannot imagine it's where I find Jesus. And um, so anyway, I guess my spiritual journey started out with a love of the church and a love of people. And um, it turned out to be um, a great place to find Jesus. So that's where I'm at, I'm at now. And I'm, I should say, I'm, I'm probably two years away from retirement. So as I look back on a lot of this, it was like, oh yeah, that's why I made that decision. And that's why I waited that long. And you know, it just it seemed to kind of all come into fruition. And I've, I've been, I don't know, I'm, I don't think God's done with me. <laughs> I might be done with full-time work, but um, certainly not with finding Jesus in people that uh, most people don't find them there. Yeah, I'm... Um... I'm really pulled by what you said about um, learning about poverty, bringing you into the ministry, 
Um, one of the first classes that I took at CRCDS mm-hmm. um, was about, what was it? Ministry on the Margins was the yes. title of it. Barbara Moore. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Barbara Moore taught it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, I, I took it like I was, so unlike you, I was a first career minister and green as grass when I walked into seminary. Um, so I, the, I was really like hit hard by like how much about the world I didn't really know and understand. And also how much about like, like corporate America and like big structures I didn't understand. And I, you know, I took that as some kind of like, oh my gosh, like some liability against myself when I began ministry and then quickly realized that, no, that's, that's, you know, it, we, we all have things to learn and there are people that are much, 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 much older than me that don't understand these processes either. It's why you educate yourself, but right. ministry on the margins and um, it, we were, it, it, everything that we were learning was about, um, gosh, migrant workers that are the ones who are supplying the food that I was selling at my part-time job at Wegmans. Right. And, you know, uh, and, and about like how desperately low the minimum wage really is, which I basically knew because I was making it at Wegmans again. And, um, you know, and, and like how, how low on top of that the poverty line is in this country. Like you couldn't support anything. Like you could not pay for a cardboard box and a slice of Wonder Bread with minimum, with, with, with what is considered the poverty line here. And that's, and, and, and then there's people who are even below that is just, it's, it's terrifying in such a wealthy country, how little so many people have, and then so how much so many others have, um, you know, so that was like, that was kind of like my, that was my first foot in the door on, you know, on all of this. And then I kept going and in the last week, and just as that periodic heads up to our listeners, we record these things and then we post them later. So when we talk about something that happened last week, it's not going to be last week anymore. But in the last week, when we've been hearing all of this stuff about the Titan submersible mm-hmm. and these kind of insanely rich people that, you know, took this sort of hastily and shoddily built submersible down to go visit a wreck that that is in itself a disaster that was amplified by the gap between the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. And then these five wealthy people themselves died. Uh, So we in this country so badly want to believe that we could have been one of the five people to pay a quarter of a million dollars to end up on that submersible. And we, we want, and the, and we watched that situation unfold like it was a Netflix TV special. And it told all of the notes of a story that our white American brains are taught to see as valuable, that it's about rich people. It's, there's, you know, a father and a son on there that there's, you know, a CEO on there. Like we've almost got the beginning of the plot of Gilligan's Island and like, and 
and then there's a ticking clock and everything. And like, we're, so it, it's hitting all of the notes that we're taught to see and we're identifying so strongly with it. Meanwhile, there was a much, much, much deadlier maritime disaster that happened a week before that involving a migrant ship on its way to Italy that sunk outside of Greece. And um, I preached about this last Sunday because we are so much closer to the migrant ship than we are to the millionaires on the submersible, if you're kind of following my logic yeah. there. But we, we want to hear about the plight of the rich because we just everything about our culture so teaches us that we could be that you know? <laughs> oh, I'm very yeah. well aware that I am far more likely to be the migrant person, mm -hmm. even with as much money as I make, <laughs> than and, I am like, to be the billionaire on some yeah. <laughs> extremely risky venture. <laughs> like we Just are so much well aware of that. <laughs> like we are one to two paychecks at most, most of the time from being on the street. And we, we will never be, you know, so rich that we can blow that kind of money you know, to go see the Titanic, like, but, you know, America, in America here, our priorities are so, so, so painfully skewed. Yeah, we worship you know? money. We don't worship the Lord of hosts. We worship money in our country. So there's yeah. um, what I learned in uh, studying um, issues of poverty. And I, I was recruited about three years after I finished CRCDS to, um, do a doctor of ministry um, program at St. Paul's School of Theology in Kansas City because the same person that drew me into seminary was now dean out there. So I went ahead and got my doctoral degree and, um, and it was on children in poverty in a global context. And there are two ways, well, there's more than two, but there's two main ways that you can become familiar with issues of poverty. And one is um, through the traditional way or the more obvious way, and that's through statistics. And you can come up with all kinds of statistics that separate the rich from the poor um, and those uh, through race and um, ethnicity. It's just, uh, it, it, there's statistics galore. Or you can learn through relationships and relationship-based ministry. And I've always contended that until you really know and understand why people live in poverty and why they're locked into poverty, you won't see that society actually keeps them there on purpose. And, um, and then you can turn around and, and um, more effectively address the, the systemic issues. But it really, I'm sorry, I got my phone ringing on my mother's phone. Um, until you have that relationship and um, magic, sorry, um, then you're, you're magic, addressing systemic issues kind of rings hollow. And that's what I love about a, a relationship-based ministry in the urban center is because you can walk down to the coffee shop two blocks away and stop and talk to people on their porch. They learn to trust you. Uh, it's it's just a without relationship based ministry, the study of poverty is um, it's just statistics. 
No, it really is. And it's, it's relationships that save us. It's what makes us human. Mom, I learned so much more so about, mom. Oh, hold on, buddy. I learned so much more about, um, about urban housing mm-hmm. and about, gosh, I mean, about like emergency situations. And I mean, things that I can't even, I, I, I can't, I can't verbally articulate in a way that serves it justice from working with Habitat for Humanity here in Schenectady. And, you know, and again, in my white suburban brain, I think of Habitat as like getting on a plane and going to like a foreign country and going on like a build somewhere. So it's, it's mission work, but it's almost also kind of like a vacation. (laughs) <laughs> and that's that's just how my white brain is built to work but in reality it like habitat is right here and it took me about three blocks away mm-hmm. to uh, you know to just literally the other side of the tracks here in Schenectady um to a very underfunded block that was affected by redlining a century mm-hmm. ago and mm-hmm. now still does not have the funds necessary to build appropriate housing. Wow. And we were building up houses and clearing out lots and lots of trash mm-hmm. and it's setting the foundation for what will be homes for single mothers. And that is like, that is real life. And when you build with Habitat, you're building alongside the people that are going to live in the house. Well, and the other thing great about Habitat is that they address the systemic issues of housing in an empowering way. They don't try and solve um, poverty by giving people a bag of groceries once a week. That's, there's immediate need and then there's long-term need. And Habitat is really one of those good ones who's thought through the the long-term needs and solutions for people who struggle. you know, um, my my experience working with um, healthcare systems um, until recently. Now I'm working in kind of a different aspect of health health information and health data, but um, talking to people who worked directly um, with people who are in poverty um, and people who are ill and disabled, mm-hmm. talking direct and like also reading charts and trying to figure out like what's going on. A people in power know about all this stuff there's just very little will to fix it i think as we said the other day when in our interview with beth quick you know the cruelty is the point people know they just they don't care um they don't care to fix the problem um and i know some of them probably do and they are trying um but uh there are certain is aspects of things here in, in Western New York, um, in the city of Buffalo, people know they've known for a long time and they don't, they don't actually care to fix the problem. Um, thinking specifically of lead poisoning in children, um, but also in, um, maternal mortality rates in the South, uh, right now in the United States, people know, and they're just going out of their way to make things worse, not better. Um, and it's also one of the biggest things that I see um, in addition to kind of systemic problems is serious and persistent mental illness and Mm -hmm. the lack of treatment for it and how a lot of that stems from like issues of chronic poverty, um, instability, violence um, within the home 
and within the community. Um, and um, so complex trauma. Um, yeah. That it, so that's individual level, but there needs to be some kind of systemic level, like care for that problem. And I just don't think we have a very good system for it in this country at all. No, and we and over the years we've set up roadblocks so that um, when you do try and um, address systemic issues, you come in con confrontation with uh, barriers that. I mean, really write a letter? You want me to just write a letter to my congressman and tell him why I, no, that's, it's not, that's, uh, there's some argument that there, if a lot of letters arrive, then that's something, but um, protesting, um, uh, going on marches, um, being visible in your um, uh, either dislike or distrust of, what the system is doing. And there's no denying that all three of us participate in the system, um, whether we like it or not, just simply by being white and the privileged educated people that we are. Uh, so it's, it's a very complicated uh, setting to try and address this, but you know, I, I, I still go back to, boy, if I, if I hadn't visited um, um, Janice, I'll make her name up, uh, and her son in their home and, you know, really got a sense of how they live. Um, and they were able to uh, really become involved in the church so that then the church people began to know Janice and her son, that we became more and more aware and supportive in ways that she was not getting from the uh, Department of Social Services. She was not getting sure. from uh, her landlord. Uh, and it's been, I think, life-giving for us all. It's been, That's good. That's yeah. good. There's a, uh, that reminds me a lot of the um, Congregational Health Network in Memphis, mm. Memphis out of Methodist Labonner Hospital where, um, the, the hospital system encouraged faith communities in the area to be involved with their parishioners who were coming in and out of the hospital. And they were noticing that were better health outcomes because they were engaging with the health of people in their congregations and also showing that community of support to people who are physically ill to help right. um, strengthen their spirit, so. Right, absolutely. It's very critical. Um, community, I believe, is extremely critical in helping people lead healthier lives and less impoverished lives. And even if they are, say, you know, poor, they can still have that community of people that care about them and are looking out for them. Exactly. And that's just a big emotional boost. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps them in a way that uh, food stamps can't do. That They don't call it food stamps anymore, but yeah. Mm -hmm. SNAP, so yeah. SNAP plus church, SNAP, you know, I, I have no problems with federal programs. In fact, I wish they would get better, bigger and better, but um, yeah. yes, like let's have all of those things and good community. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. I really resonated with you talking about um, going to school full-time and working full-time. 
I was never able to do that, but I was able, I worked all my whole way through seminary. So yeah. I resonated with that. It is so hard. So all of you listeners out there who are yeah. working and going to seminary, working and going to school, you are seen yeah. and loved. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, it's a, uh, it's possible. You know, I, I just always try to encourage people. It's possible. Uh, it's a huge commitment, but it doesn't take, it's not forever. It's just yeah. that you can do it. And um, yeah, it's, it was probably the biggest adventure of my life. And I, I'd do it again in a minute. Same with my D-Men. I would do that in a heartbeat. And I recommend it. It's, it was the best life-giving gift I ever gave to myself. I had some, I had classes with my CRCDS professors that profoundly changed my life. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular with Dr. James Evans, who has passed away, Um, but his class on Thurman King and the life of the spirit, that class changed my life. Jess, did you take that the same year that I took it? I don't think so. I actually, it was while they were doing it, they were doing some satellite classes in Buffalo at um, one of the Baptist churches on Swan Street. Oh my gosh. That class was amazing. Yeah, no, seriously. I knew so little about Thurman before that class. And then I took it. And since then he is like my favorite person. Isn't he? It's wonderful. Howard Thurman, everybody. Howard Thurman. (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously. Howard Thurman for, for everything. Seriously. Um, but I, I, oh my gosh, like he changed my theology so, 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 so much. And so P.S. I've got a wiggler on my lap for people who are listening to this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He he found Howard Thurman found the balance between, uh, social um holiness and personal holiness you yes. know he really found that sweet spot oh, and articulated it mm-hmm. absolutely yeah yeah so one of the things i wanted to talk to you in particular about Anne, is we call this podcast the dangerous liberal lady preachers it is a short but funny story about where that name came from essentially a troll on youtube who called me that and i've been dining out on it for the last three years so um and i it's ridiculous it's lengthy it's borderline word salad which is why i love it so much Um, and, but all of us have used those words differently. I took something that was absolutely intended to be an insult and a silencing one. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of become this thing that I draw a lot of power from, Mm -hmm. um, our friend, Emily, who wasn't able to be in this episode, but our friend, Emily has talked about how she was uh, kind of, she was hesitant at first. She wanted, she really wanted to do a podcast with us, but she was hesitant at first to kind of get on board, not because of the word liberal, but because of the word dangerous. Right. She, she right. didn't know if she wanted to put herself connected to anything using the word dangerous. Um, and I know that you are also going to inter- you're going to interact with those words differently yourself because we have this odd thing, especially in the United Methodist Church right now, with what it actually means to be liberal 
-hmm. because right now, because of where we are obsessively focused right on sexuality and gender identity with regard Mm -hmm. to marriage and ordination, anybody Mm -hmm. who is GLBTQIA affirming is called liberal or progressive. And anybody who isn't is called conservative. And at least nominally, that does make sense. But, you know, again, through relationship, when we're talking to you, Anne, I don't think you really are all that liberal, at least with with regard to most other things. You're just also GLBTQIA affirming. So I'd love to hear how you feel about kind of being tagged as a dangerous liberal lady preacher, because I'm very sure the person who said that about me would say it about you too, and Jess and Emily, and basically anybody with a uterus doing this job. And um, I, yeah, and so I'm, I'm curious how you feel about all of that. Uh, I, I, I would probably side with Emily in that um, the word dangerous uh, makes it sound like I want to avoid you. <laughs> it's like risky, and you might hurt me. Uh, so I, 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 I'm an introvert. So it takes me a while to, because I didn't have the background. You just asked me about what what's the dangerous mean to me and liberal mean to me. Um, so I'll do liberal first. Uh, I don't like labels. It's like placing somebody on the rainbow of life, wherever you are, and there's a line that's drawn between conservative, liberal, there's a line between that and progressive. I don't like them. I just think we all find ourselves somewhere on that spectrum of life. And um, I never thought I was uh, a liberal, but I enjoy reading Marcus Borg. I done the living the questions with the John Dominic Crossan and Bishop Spong. Um, but I also like reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer and um, you know some of those real um, orthodox, I guess, um, theologians. And so I I try and again look at life and look at my faith journey and my church and the dynamics that go on there and don't try and pigeonhole it. Now, we are a reconciling congregation and because it makes no sense to me at all that that would be a line drawn. There's, there is no line. We just all find ourselves on a different place in that spectrum. Um, and I think in the United Methodist Church, we have a pretty big umbrella. And again, we're trying to define where exactly that umbrella ends um, and where it begins. And when you uh, cross over to core orthodox um, beliefs into a more um, broad understanding of how we relate to God uh, through Jesus. So I... I don't, so as far as dangerous liberal lady preachers, um, I, I would say passionate. I would take those words from this event offender and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not dangerous, I'm passionate. And um, I don't think there's a problem with being a liberal. I just wish there was 
a way to not have that be bad <laughs> in some people's eyes. But in order for people to protect their own personal boundaries as far as what they're willing to believe in and what they're not, they need those labels. And I think we would be a much better church if we, we ministered with passion and not with labels. I appreciate the fact that you and Natalie brought this up that um, you can, it, like, so I, I might, would be considered liberal in a lot of ways. Um, I've, I've jokingly said to my friend, Dr. John Tyson, that I'm theologically slutty. Um, but <laughs> I, I, uh, when it comes to my beliefs in terms of like core Christian beliefs, I am like high church, um, Nicene Creed, 100%. Right. Like yeah. that's, that's where I am. I'm not a low Christology person. I am very much there with the, you know, the seven holy councils um, of the early church. And so, you know, I have no problems with the, the, divinity of Jesus. And there are some things that Marcus Borg writes that I'm like, that's great. And some that he writes, and I'm like, I don't know, man. And it's the same with N.T. Wright. There are some mm -hmm. things that he has written in some of his books that are just fantastic. And some things that I'm like, oh man, dude, you've missed the mark. But that's the true for all of us, isn't it? Right. You know? So yeah, we, uh, we contain multitudes as one of my friends likes to say, we contain multitudes. Um, like certainly I may be theologically liberal, quote unquote, but I also very am, I prefer extremely conservative liturgy. That's not what we do at my church because my church is my church and I let them be the way they are, but I love me a high church conservative liturgical service. So uh -huh. we contain multitudes. Exactly. <laughs> well, and I think this is the importance why we have to cultivate a, um, a, uh, environment of critical thinking you know we cannot operate um in church these days as strictly as feelers and strictly as emotive kind of responses we have to be critical thinkers and be willing yes. to, we talk you know dialogue has gone out the window we're not because we get so offended well get over the offendedness and just be open to conversation about critical thinking and mm. I, I that's what I maybe that's what I loved about seminary is mm -hmm. it really teaches you how to think through things and not just respond to them emotively yes mm -hmm. I that's one of my big problems right now with a lot of but both within the Methodist church and outside of it is this lack of like let's sit down and think through things critically here there's mm -hmm. just a lot of like emotional you know um and not that emotions are bad obviously there has to be a balance between two and um, there's just been a lot of in kind of devolvement in what i would think of as magical thinking or superstitious thinking yeah yeah um, that's a good one really i think that kind of kind of came back out of like the new age movement and is filtered into Christianity again. And I find that to be very disturbing and frightening yeah. um, because God's not just some celestial slot machine and the universe isn't just going to give you what you want because you want it. Like that's let's stop this nonsense guys. That's not, it's not Christian theology and it's not right. who Jesus is or who God is. 
Right. <laughs> right. So thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. Yeah. You're welcome. Yes. Well, really, thank you for just being who you are in the world. Wow. You know, I'm, for both of you, I thoroughly enjoyed your time on, you know, going through Boom. I know for you, it was a lot different than the way I experienced it, but um, you both had just, and Emily as well, had just had um, a tremendously positive impact on people's experience on the board. Um, mm -hmm. You know, not universally, because we don't, that's not the way we operate, but you, the three of you were um, just, it was just a pleasure to see you journey through that process as bumpy and unpleasant as, as it could be. Um, you were very impressive and there's yeah. hope for the church. You know, that's what, that's what I always leave with is like, wow, there's hope for the church. And yeah. I wanted to tell you that you're interviewing me during the commissioning process because I had no idea what to expect when I got there for interviews but oh. you really made those interviews oh. feel like a positive good place to be so thank you very much for that um, yes thank you yeah that's the way yeah. it should be yeah and I mean I talked about this when I um when I talked to Rochelle when we had our episode with her what we need to learn how to do is to be good mentors to one another mm -hmm. and you are an excellent mentor oh thank you no really really and truly it's i it's it's what it takes in order for this denomination to have a future is instead of scaring people away from the ministry to show people how to do it yeah well, I, I, I'm hopeful. So that's, that's always a good way to finish a kind of a conversation is that, you know, you lead people with a little bit of hope on the end of my sermons. You know, I always think, wow, I hope there's something that they can take home, and hang their hat on and come back next week for another boost. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm always worried about that. I'm like, oh man, if I preach this sermon, is anybody going to come back next week? <laughs> well, I know, I know. And I, there's only been a few times where I really, um, I think I surprised people in, in that, I, I don't know. And I, it was not, I did not get bad. I never get bad response. Well, I won't say that. I most often get positive affirmation in the way we do things. And but I, I think there's an evolution in our churches that's happening and the new people that are coming in, uh, and at least in our case, are all young. And for a long time, years and years, it was like, oh, where are all the young people? Well, now they're coming. And I, I think it's because of COVID and not because they got kind of awakened by some spiritual awareness. I think we're doing church differently. And mm -hmm. I think it's a good thing that we are not going back to a lot of this. Well, okay, I apologize for this in advance. Stodgy ways that we were doing church. And if it means, you know, young uh, families that are also going into church leadership, uh, whether it's clergy or, um, I, I just think there's room now for a level of tolerance that we didn't have before COVID. And I, I want us to keep that um, and not, not jeopardize it. 
I feel like my congregation got closer during COVID. It did. (laughs) The other thing is, I think that COVID injected a huge amount of reality into our churches that they desperately needed, even if they didn't want it. And getting things that you need that you don't want is generally how we grow. Right. Um, I actually just had this conversation with my mom on the phone the other day because her church has been in decline like most of ours have. Her church uh, is in the is the same one that I grew up in. It's in the Chicago suburbs. And it, it's, it's one of these places that growth, their growth model of the church has long been based on this idea that the young people, because mm-hmm. we're all just one group, you know, right. uh, we, we just, you know, we meet, we have like our own sorority that meets on like Friday nights. Like we're just the young people, but anyway, the young people, um, will, you know, even no matter, like, even if we have like absolutely no faith engagement in our lives, um, we're going to want to get married. And so we're going to look for a church to get married in. And then we're going to want to baptize our kids in a church and so marriage and baptism is what's going to bring us into our congregations. And so that's what's going to bring people into the door. So basically the churches themselves have to do nothing. They just have to wait for us to just show up. And especially a church in the suburbs, because that's the American dream. We're going to want to buy a house in the suburbs, get married and have kids. And then we're going to want to baptize those kids and raise them in the Sunday school in the church. Therefore, all they have to do is just sit and wait for us to show up. And if they don't, it's an issue of our morality. And that is just not how any of this works. What? And our, our, you know, our churches have had to grow up, but because they've had to grow up in their, in their sense of mission and discipleship, they finally started growing again. Young people, a lot of us aren't getting married. We're getting married much later in life than our boomer parents did. A lot of us aren't having kids. If we are, we're having them much later in life than our boomer parents did, and we're having fewer of them, and we're not going through these, these, these motions of, oh, it must happen in a church. I better open the yellow pages and look one up. So because of that, if you want to reach us, it's not going to be because we're going to go through these automatic rites of passage. Yeah. And it's not going to be because, oh, the American dream is out there. I'm going to become a Christian to achieve it. It's going to happen because your church is doing something important for the community that I care about. And I want to change the world like you do. And our church has had to start embracing that or die, especially during COVID when people were getting sick and dying. It was this huge injection of reality. Now, it should not have happened at the cost of lives. Um, and that is the tragic part, but we, what we can hold on to is that sense of, you know, we're, we're going to change or we're going to die. So we better. There is something about how God turns all things for good. So Mm -hmm. I, and I do believe that. Yeah, totally, totally. I wonder, and I know that, I know that we're going to lose you in a few minutes, my dear. So Mm -hmm. I savor every second that I can get with you. If there was one thing that you could tell the world about God, what Mm. would it be? Well, you know, 
it's it's a cliche to say that God is good. Um, but if there's if there's one thing that um, I would say on my deathbed is that God is good. I mean, not just nice, good. I mean, there's nothing that I have felt all my life that um, God was not a part of it in a good way. Even in the midst of deep grief, God was there with um, goodness. I, you know, not to erase the bad or the sad, but there's something about the presence of God that is um, life-giving. And I would love people to know that life-giving, outside of anything you can do or be, is there faithfully forever. Um, and I and I think if people had a grasp of that deep, steadfast goodness, it would be more attractive. But we tend to ruin it with doctrine and you know and churchy stuff and <laughs> language and um, you know we we set ourselves up as high and mighty and really we're just struggling like everybody else so just find that goodness uh, outside yourself that's there no matter what that would be it this is why we love you Anne. <laughs> and well, I really, you. since you're talking Absolutely. about you know people being able to connect to the divine because the divine is good and because people have goodness within them and that that peace that is the divine living in you is how you build relationship with God. I hope that you're able and to see it. one another. Yeah. yeah and I hope you're yeah. able to see it in yourself too, Anne. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. It's, you know, that this is, it can, this job as clergy can be one of the most affirming things that will ever happen in your life. Um, it's hard and it's wounding at times. Um, it's uh, demanding. Uh, and not everybody is patient with how long it takes for um, things to happen. But it does. And it always happens on God's time and in God's goodness. So, totally. Thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you Thank for you. saying yes. It's been very Absolutely. wonderful. Thank you, Anne. Absolutely. Yes, thank you. Give Emily my love. I did have a, a wonderful interaction with her at um, annual conference. Yes. It was good. It was good to see people. As oh. an introvert, that's saying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. For those of us who like our homes and our little cubbies, um, it was good to see everybody. Yes, it was. So anyway, peace right. and love to you, Anne. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie and Jessica Glazer.